we have our very own race driver and uh, one of the first uh, female race drivers in Asia, Claire Jedrick. I was always a person that never really had nerves until an hour before. It's like any sport, you train and you train and you train. And like anything really in your life, it's that 10,000 hour rule. Then of course the pressure is always for that moment, but then you just got to really be in that moment and not think about anything. The views, information and opinions expressed in this podcast and this YouTube channel are solely the views of the individuals involved. It does not reflect the views of their organizations, employers and employees, past, present and future. Like this show? Then rate it 5 stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast by creatives at work. It is produced, written and hosted by Sean Lee Wen-Chong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim and edited by Ray Ng. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. Okay, so Yenling, it's very fitting that we are recording this like the week before the Singapore Grand Prix. Of course, by the time this episode comes out, the Singapore Grand Prix will be like passed for like a month or so. But in any case, it's fitting because we have our very own race driver and uh, of course, uh, one of the first uh, female race drivers in Asia, Claire Jedrick. So before we get into it, Claire, which driver vibes with you the most in, in Formula 1? I mean, it has to be number 44. It's got to be Lewis Hamilton. Husband does not like him, but it's all right. <laughs> I love Verstappen. I love. I, I do love like what they bring. I think the characters. It's for me. It's it's a character play. Like it's it's interesting. Yeah. It's bringing back old school racing where there was characters. It's not so formal anymore and, and business orientated. So you do a lot of sports presenting. You do a lot of sports presenting, right? What's that like for you? You know, um, trying to interview the drivers. I mean, I've had I've had like events where certain drivers, they've just decided to go completely off topic or not do the interview or not do what has been set out, um, which is something you can always plan for because they've gone like, mm, I can tell it's getting boring, whatever the, the event company has like wanted to do. And then they've just kind of gone somewhere else and uh, just completely gone off topic. Um, and that's always quite hard to, to be impromptu. We've had a little bit of that with um, back in the days with Mercedes and Lewis. He's known to kind of just sometimes go off topic and you've just got to be prepared with it and go with it. But I've never really had anything too major. So Claire, you're going to be heading to your mo- to your to probably your busiest weekend of the entire quarter coming up. Maybe you can tell us, uh, you know, what does your typical day look like for you? Because we know that you are, uh, well, you you race, you you do, you a businesswoman, you're a presenter, uh, you host, uh, and of course you've got two young kids. So what is your typical day like? Well, I was going to start off to say that God is fair. I can't sing. I'm terrible. Even if I'm in the shower, it's absolutely awful. People would pay me for not to sing. You can make a career out of it as well. It's okay. <laughs> I thought about a career in bad singing, in memes. I thought oh. about doing that. Actually, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was actually an idea. I think people want to listen to that, right? Some bad singing. It'll go viral, maybe. We can find anything right now on the internet, yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, typical day. I mean, things are ramping up. I mean, first and foremost, I think it's it's definitely with family. Um, uh, constantly finding balance between family now that I have two kids. And um, well, I mean, not now. I mean, it's been five years, really, since the start that I had the first kid. And yeah, it's a, it's a constant in the morning of being able to get them ready, get them off to school because we drive them to school, tag teaming with my, with my husband, Yui. Um, making sure what they eat, their schedule. And then I kind of think about my schedule. I'm freelance presenter, so I, I'm not attached with the company. So I have to do everything myself. I have to do all the admin myself. Um, we have to do all our business admin ourselves. I think just going through household things, company things. It, it's weird, the word influencer, KOL, whatever you want to call it nowadays. A lot of social media, social media work. Um, and of course I do my hosting and presenting. Then I have my passion projects where I like to connect people up. Um, for instance, like reaching out to the youth. I mean, this Formula One weekend is, uh, the last two weeks coming up. It's not just all about work, work, work. I think it's been important to be able to give back to our youth as well. I mean, connect them up and connect people up. Um, yeah. So tell us more about this journey that you've been on. How did it get to where you are? Because what you do is rather unique. Yes, you are an influencer, you are KOL, um, but in a very specific genre, right? I would say specifically in racing, right? I mean, I think that's my basis that people know about me. But I think, give some context, I have also kind of learned to step back from something that I've tagged myself against, being that motorsport personality, because essentially work stopped for two years. 
I couldn't travel, which which was the basis of my life the last ten years. Um, going to going to races, training for races, presenting at live events, being the commentator as well as live TV presenter. That's ten years of my life. I'm um, also managing my husband's team or doing team sport. That was ten years of my life. I definitely am a person who is a chameleon um, who kind of. Um, has learned to change with the times, and I think it's really important to reinvent yourself. But I think going back to your question, which was how did I get there and how this how this journey started? I mean, to be honest, the real basis. I mean, number one was I think to summarize everything. One was accidental. Two, I mean, the most important thing is then the uh, the strategic part of it. Some part of it has been on purpose, and then exploiting, learning how to do the business side of that. Um, and, and learning and having mentors. So there's really two parts to my story. The first part really was um, um, I've always done sport. Um, my parents were not sporty people. This is something I think sometimes your personality, absolutely, now that I have children, I've learned that um, it's innate. I just had a lot of energy. I also had a lot of support from my parents, even though they were so busy working. I mean, I had a great childhood. I was running around, climbing things, throwing eggs at the neighbors, knocking on doors, running away. I mean, I had I had a great time. Some of it was confusing a little bit. I mean, um, because obviously I'm of mixed parentage, so I used to get asked things in the playground: "Are you Chinese? What are you?" And I never understood. I did not. Do you know? I did not know my parents were of different race until I was about twelve years old when I moved to Singapore and I think it was more of a parent thing when I had kids ask me like, Oh, you're mixed or maybe they were hanging about me because my accent or the way I look or my hair was different because it's wavy. My surname, I think people were intrigued um, for good or bad reasons, whatever you're 12 years old. It was a period of my life where I was pure. I was enthusiastic. I was curious. I had a great time. I, I, it was a fantastic first 12 years of my life. How was it like this 12 years old is not an easy age to transition and there was a huge transition it was right? yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did not enjoy it my parents were away for a while they sent us here went back and packed up it was very confusing uh, I was also having to be an older sister to to a younger sister who was crying a lot I was stuck into like my aunt's house and with people who I knew but then it, it's not my parents um, unfamiliar just yeah I, I had to be strong for a bit of better most of a, of a year without my parents. There was some probably childhood trauma of things that I've worked through. I mean, I was also thrown into, I would say, like I was very always enthusiastic about my studies back in UK. Um, I was thrown into a place where they've told, mm, you're not so great over here. You got to do all this tuition and um, you've got, you know, it was very different. I what school the, do you go to? Um, I joined when so when I came to Singapore, I was in Cedar Girl School. But I also had a bit of say because I wanted to do it because I loved running. Yeah, so I was in the team sports there. I remember so much of random details and things. It's because it kind of set the foundation really. Um, I did things like the X Games and aggressive inline. You can see me in photos from the age of six, running and doing competitions, running my heart out. I think it's something that I've always just been more akin to for things like so we did we had the local x games and i went into there's a part of me the break dancing which people know more on the on the break dancing i've never seen you break dance yeah i know well i'm gonna be i'm actually my dad on my on my recent birthday actually did a memory box and he has all these photos of me which probably is a good reason why i have all these neck injuries <laughs> um of all these things that i was doing all these yeah freezers and th that was a big part of my life because i was very into the hip-hop scene back in my teenage years i studied hospitality and tourism to, for my degree and, and you so you didn't go through the international school which is the no, most common for those who came no i didn't because i was living with my family over here so i think with the local like they knew how to get into the system here and stuff like that so it was a huge adjustment for me it, it was massive. And of course, I don't speak Mandarin. It was it was a difficult time. The system was very, very different. No, it's, it's okay, Quen. Yenning and I don't really speak Mandarin either. <laughs> I'm trying to. I know my colours. I, I, I know I know what mooncake is. Yebing. <laughs> yeah. But I was always working, doing commercials and flying out and doing stuff. That was my, my basis. Uh, I've always been working since the age of 16. And then I had a big break um, with Red Bull TV. I think I kind of found my footing in my place because back then, um, 15 years ago, sports 
and women and selling that dream of in Asia particularly not not in not not overseas um, it was a very different thing I mean now you see people everybody wants to be hardcore and extreme everyone's doing yoga everyone's doing MMA and you know what I mean um, but back then there just wasn't extreme sport I tried to sell the dream that was probably my first thing that I tried to sell about myself didn't really work out people weren't convinced and then anyway I mean from there the Red Bull TV I, I got a cut I did sports hosting um, then it kind of bled into things luxury lifestyle and then when I did motorsport it was automotive and motorsport. And that's where the strategy came in for me to kind of swing another way to maybe make that part of my career. And that, yeah, that took me a while to get there. Yeah, because I was thinking as well, you know, out of everything, I think this is something that I personally, you know, I'm quite curious about your personality who, you know, this is your career, right? For us, I think like for Sean and I, we can hide behind the camera we can hide behind all the admin work but for personalities who are in front of camera you have to make a conscious choice about how much of the work that you do is sort of planned like I am going in this direction I want to go in this direction to be honest it has been in the last decade I mean I would say over the last 20 years um, of being in this industry the first 10 years was a very was a period of time I was very lost I didn't know a lot of self-doubt, a lot of low confidence. Um, I got into it and I tried to get an agency, but it was a very unhappy time in my life. I thought I, I, I was on the rise in 2008, 2009. I actually had a lot of personal contacts. I got involved in an agency thinking they would give me more jobs, more exposure. It was the worst time of my life. I was so broke for two years. It was the worst, the worst. Um, it did nothing for my confidence. And for somebody who didn't have an education, who didn't have training, I was kind of thrown into it. Um, Singapore's like that, it's very fast paced. You know, you do things, you get into it. You will always get more opportunities. That's the great thing about Singapore. There's one degree of separation. People will just throw you jobs and either you do it, you make it or you don't. And on to the next. And um, I never realized really this was a, a process for me. And uh, so that was the first 10 years of my life. I moved away, had a relationship that broke down, decided to come back to Singapore. In, in very short and decided, nope, I've been irrelevant for two or three years. How do I get back into this? Um, I had some guidance. I met my husband who was into business already and doing stuff in, in as a friend. And uh, I, I had a couple of people kind of gave me my job. And then I decided, um, you know, I, I don't know. I was at the lowest point of my life uh, at the age of 30. And then I just kind of thought, F it. What have I got to lose? I, I really have nothing. It's clean slate. Uh, and I then started rebuild my new persona. So then I said, look, the basis that has always been me has been my sport. Um, I didn't know anything about motorsport. I was never exposed to it. I really knew nothing, but I'm a competitive person. So that was really the drive of um, me getting into a new sport. And when I got my first job to host um, the karting championship, the local leagues over here, um, it was important to be able to know what I was talking about, know the characters. And that's where I really developed that skill set. And that was not strategic. It was something back then, my husband, then friend was like, well, you need to know how to talk about karting. If not, it's not going to be exciting. You're just going to be saying names and there's no emotion. There's no connection. So I did some local leagues in short and then um, won some, then got involved in a different way into motorsport. And then strategically, um, to be honest, some people kind of said to me, uh, well, that's weird. When I said, well, maybe I can do sport and motorsport. Sport was coming to be a big thing for um, in back then, that whole yoga thing and and uh, branding and marketing and a lifestyle. It was huge 10 years ago. It was starting to pick up. Yeah, from there, it just I kind of stuck to the idea. I kind of cut out the white noise, which is very hard. But I think because I had nothing to lose. And, and don't forget, throughout this last like 20 years, I am just like another Eurasian in like a wave of Eurasian girls. What have I got to offer? I mean, in a wave of entertainment, Eurasian girls were taller, who are prettier, who have more experience. I mean, that's the entertainment world, you know, um, who are funnier. I'm not a funny person. So, I mean, that's just not my unique selling point. Um, how do I make it? I was constantly told I was speaking too fast. I was, you need to look a certain way, you need to do this. And I found it hard I because I also didn't have that passion to like want to be famous. In my heart, I wanted it to be organic and, oh, it's accidental. But I realized um, 
a lot of during the way that it was, it's very much just like a, a marriage relationship. There's lust, there's enticement into the industry. That's when you kind of think you have passion for it, like a person. But then once you've done the groundwork and you think, I want to stay in this, then um, you've got to really work on that foundation, do the groundwork, um, and then exploit. I say exploit because I think that's the easiest, best, easiest word to, to for people to understand it. Use those opportunities to find new ones. And then uh, just like the concept of marriage, you then have to work really hard to just keep it going. Um, yeah. I thought it's quite interesting that you said that you had, your first 10 years of your life was low, you had low confidence. It was and, awful. And, it was and awful. Yet, and then somehow you find yourself on deal or no deal and, and just standing for there for the whole episode, just smiling, holding that briefcase. How did you get on that show, actually? And what was it like? I mean, people, it's weird because people was like, oh, you're a model. And I was like, well, I'm not really a model. You know what I mean? I was never confident. I, I never really liked the term modeling because um, I just wasn't your typical model. Um, I had a lot of confidence issues. I did commercials. I wasn't a stand-up you know, kind of person. But I thought, hey, it was easy money. Two weeks of filming, standing there. For me, it was about making money. It was and only two I, weeks? I, it was two <laughs> weeks of filming. Yeah, for each, oh, each one. But every day. Oh, every day for those two weeks. And to me, it was more about making money. And I was like, it's easy. You know, I don't really have to get involved with the girls there. I'll go there. I'll do my job, stand there, look pretty, interact. Maybe I'll make a friend. Maybe I won't. Um, for me, it was about making money because, like I said, from the age of 16, my parents had always instilled in me, um, make your own money. I didn't get pocket money. Um, you know, I came from a middle-income family. So it was... It was about supporting myself and having my own money. You, you were 16 when you were on that show? No, no, or? no, no, no. I was already in my 20s, I think ah, then, right. 24, 25. But from the age of 16, I've always just been doing work. So the commercial work, I mean, I was very lucky that I was able to earn a significant amount of money at that age. And to me, that was just, I mean, I was waitering and then I... And then when I got into other commercials, then I was doing commercials and, and jobs like that. Just imagining you're standing there and hoping that they pick you first so you get to go back and sit down. <laughs> so then, then stand there for the rest of the episode. Like, pick me, it's pick me. It's very true. It's very true. But I mean, I think it was exciting for all of us. I mean, I think there was a lot of opportunities that people had. I don't think I really had any specific thought. Like, I have made it. This is it. This is my opportunity. I mean, I remember that. I remember thinking, I'm in the middle. I'm near this girl. I'm near this girl. Maybe we're the group of that clique who's like, maybe they think <laughs> we have some star thing. I remember stressing over smart things to say when I opened the box. You know what I mean? Like that. That was that was the height of the moment. Then thinking about something witty or cool or something they remember me for. It was also a period of time where people were using, you know, other names. They were changing their names. Um, in the industry some people who don't use real names yeah it, it was a thing because um, blogs were big back then don't forget yeah yeah that's right. throughout my poly years which also got me into a lot of trouble and lost me a lot of jobs oh. and also caused me a lot of pain like I it was such a weird time you know when blogging was big yeah those bloggers like, who are still around now but probably don't do it as much I remember I remember doing my own page I used to do all the html my, uh, myself but I think I was more into just setting up my dad is a computer nerd so I've always had a computer my whole life. I've always been a gamer. I've always loved fiddling around. Um, my computer room was in this, well, I guess this little storage room. <laughs> and I just sit there doing HTML for hours trying to figure out the font, yeah. and figuring out how to change the color on a web page. That was my life in Polly. Like, you know, oh my goodness, my those were the days when you actually like, you know, how do I put music on that page? And then, yeah. <laughs> and then finding out gossip. Some, like my cousin from the States was like, somebody spoke about you in school, like gossip about me in the school. I was in classic Polly and going like, ooh, like, you know, people were talking about me. That's horrible. But is it? <laughs> yeah those are the days and you know the the internet was sort of just like rising and then kids started to get into it yeah yeah famous for doing nothing yeah that's what it was <laughs> to be honest the barriers of entry are ridiculously high and that's why you don't see women in it um you don't see women in it you don't see the interest in it because we're just not exposed i was never exposed i mean i remember instances back in UK when I was growing up of seeing it on TV and seeing like Damon Hill and seeing British race drivers um, but my family was not into that I mean I had the BBC on all day that's all I remember I want I always wanted to be a journalist actually actually always oh wow um, okay in front of TV because I always had the BBC on 
uh, war-torn journalists, like, you know, it's somewhere out in Iraq. That's all I saw because that was the thing back then. But anyway, um, yeah, how I got into it. I mean, to be honest, it's like what I said. I moved back to Singapore and it wasn't something that I always wanted to do. Some people, this is anti-climax, but to me, it was, I was living life. I was just, I'm, uh, I like sport. So I think you can throw me into any sport. And if I wanted to do it, I would take it all the way. So the real crux of it was that I need to learn how to walk the walk, talk the talk because of commentating and to make it authentic. So I joined the leagues, like I said, won some. And then when I started dating my husband, he was like, well, maybe you've got an opportunity. I have the IP. I know how to raise funds. I know how to raise money, which is completely something I had no idea. I I didn't come from a background where my parents taught me how to pay my bills. They would tell me, you need to pay your pager bills or your, you know, back then. And uh, you need to, you know, blah, 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 things, you know, growing pains, but they didn't teach me how to do it. Um, They're just busy working, surviving. And um, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have anyone. Um, My husband came from a very different background. At the age of 23 or 24, he had already, when he moved to Singapore, did army because he moved here for army. He had mentors. Um, He was part of car clubs because he was fortunate enough to to be able to own a car. And he kind of passed some of that knowledge on to me and, and tried to teach me. Um, some of it was very tumultuous. It's very difficult when you're teaching partners. We all know this. Yeah. <laughs> um, we generally now separate things like that. But he taught me how to raise money. He helped me along the way how to really, he said, you really are kind of marketing yourself. But here is a different way business-wise to approach to ask for money, which was a horrific thing for me. That was probably something which was the hardest. I mean, being thick-skinned, I mean, for him, his racing costs a lot of money, but to go, hey, can I have 100K, 200K? I used to shrink and hide when I'd hear him at meetings, just ask for money. I, I used to just want to disappear into a shell and go, oh my God, how, how can, can you, you do that? Right yeah. like, oh, you know, if you've got 200K laying around, we've got a marketing plan, let's do this. I just, I've never seen that in my life. It was really, really interesting, but also scary. And of course, um, the first time raising money because I was in the media, um, made it perhaps I can say a little bit easier. Um, he already had that contact for the racing teams. We found a racing team, a reputable guy in Malaysia who knew all about touring production. Um, the rest of it, though, I mean, the 70% of it, maybe up to 80% of doing the business side, raising the funds, that's super important. And that's hard. And I can tell you, as a side note to this, as an athlete in Singapore, you're not taught that. I am really grateful and very lucky that I had my husband who who was taught, well, not, I mean, who was self-taught over a decade of learning to raise funds, doing sponsorship, um, going out there and doing a marketing plan. Um, this is self-taught. Um, but the rest of the athletes out there, I would have never known how to do that unless somebody kind of drilled it into me. I just had mentors and other peers. Yeah, so, so we did that. And then, of course, then the other... 20, 30% is really actually having to go and do the race and the stuff like that. And um, and it was extremely hard at the beginning, obviously. But um, yeah, I just went out there and stuck my guns and uh, just learned how to be a team player, which is probably the hardest in this kind of sport because it's racing and you're out there, but you have a whole team behind you. And just learning the ropes. And then eventually the next year, my husband's like, you have to go find your own money. Um, I, I can't help you. You need to learn how to do it. And that's probably the scariest thing. And then uh, for the next four years, yeah, I was doing that, which is You've kind of crazy. It, yeah. <laughs> and and you and all this while you're also driving yourself as as the as as the driver. So what is it like um to be you know driving in 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 in, in a race? I mean, most of us are not would experience it from a spectator, but you you got to experience it uh, as the driver, right? So what was what's that feeling like when you are in that car? I was always a person that never really had nerves until an hour before. I think it's always systematic. It's like any sport. You train and you train and you train. I spent a ridiculous amount of time in Malaysia. I, I should have just moved there. Um, we used to drive to and fro all the time. I mean, that's 350Ks back there for four or five days a week and then drive back and then just keep continuously doing that for you know however long. You're there from seven in the morning to six in the evening. Um, testing's usually at three days a week. And I think when you drive it into you, I mean, initially it was all about learning, getting experience, being a track with others. Of course, there were so many aspects when I first started driving that really, I think for the first time being out there, it was just get some experience, know what it's like to have 30 other cars on grid and uh, just find your footing because you don't really know what to feel or to expect. It's yeah. Yeah. It's like going to a new job. 
there's so much expectation and things going on, things to look out for. And and like anything really in your life, it's that 10,000 hour rule, I always say. You just got to do the time and the seat time. And then you kind of learn the thousand different things that might happen out on track. And that's only through experience. Um, but yeah, I would only get really emotional just before my race. I would sit in my car, listen to my hip hop music. I listen to so much variance. It's probably stuff in the 90s and 2000s. I mean, I'm that <laughs> child, I'm that kid, right? I'm still listening to it, even at my birthday. I've got Nas, I've got, I mean, I've got variance. I mean, even now I'm listening to like trashy female hip hop. I've got like... Cardi B, I've got Megan The Stallion. I love that female hardcore hip hop. You know what I mean? Um, just terrible, dirty. I might have one emotional music. I feel like I'm gonna cry, and then it's done. And then you get it, you strapped in, and then you're just like, you're out there. You just, you just got to do it. You just, yeah, yeah. you just got to do it, right? It's you like, got to do it. I mean, that's what you train for, right? You spent all that money and raised all that money for. Then, of course, the pressure is always for that moment. But then you just got to really be in that moment and not think about anything. Generally, as as I've learned, you're emotionless actually as 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 an athlete. People think driving is aggressive. It's this. It's that. But really, you're emotionless. You're just going back, going based on on facts, on on what you've done when you you've gone for training. There isn't really a variation other than situations and factors you can't control. Your competitors, your hardware, the weather, the track conditions. Malaysia is where you got your first podium as well. So it must be a really special place for you. Malaysia is the closest place that I could go to. It's the only place that we have. <laughs> that's true. As an extension, you, you can't do racing here. And that's also why it's very hard in Singapore. You have karting, but to really break out and make it internationally, the karters have to go to Europe if you start at a young age. Um, for me, I mean, I didn't know that I was going to do this. I didn't even know because, I mean, the thing is, they always say you can teach anyone to drive. I can teach you, somebody can teach you to drive and to race, but it's when you run out of talent. And um, to be honest, to, when I really got good at it, it took me to a place of two and a half years. So that podium placement was like an alignment of stars. It just happened to be, I, I'm not the best driver. I wasn't the best driver. It just happened to be on that day, I, I knew what the grip felt like. I, I took a chance. I remember taking a risk going from third to second position. And I think you were telling me, everyone was screaming in the garage, don't do it, Claire. But I saw an opportunity of the car, the rear wheels, his his tires going out on the last lap and I see he couldn't keep grip and I still felt grip. It was just an alignment really on that day. Good weather, good hardware, my mental state, my driving was good um, and it aligned and it's not always like that. You mentioned the garage. Maybe for those who are curious and, and those not in the, in the business, uh, what kind of jobs are available in motorsports besides just, uh, you know, the driver, of course, and... And, the, and those are immediate party around him. To be honest, it's amazing. And I think a lot of people, their, miscon- their, their misconception really is, I mean, it's just race driver, like you said, you know, um, but there isn't. I mean, you've got physiotherapists, that are very specific trainers to, to motorsport. Of course, you've got your marketing teams, you've got your, your team managers, you've got the whole ecosystem, which is behind the racing series. You've got, I mean, like you said, you've got your race directors. I mean, like Singapore GP, for instance, um, um, the head, uh, she's been around for the last, well, more than a decade, for the last 14, I think, years, um, Jeanette Tan. She's just got promoted as well. She's um, she's uh, works in the FIA Women in Motorsport for Singapore and represent as well worldwide. Um, she heads up director director role oversees the whole um series i think she does f3 now um and that's back in europe um but you have all that team that supports all these race series it's like any kind of like sporting event you've got the organizers you've got the logistics um you know i think um not just talking as a female gender but it's an ecosystem it's massive there are so many jobs out there it's the best person for the for the job. I'm also very curious because from what I understand, please correct me if I'm wrong, right? What I see of you, at least as a personality, of course, I am motorsports. You also have a business. You work together with your um, husband who also brought you into this whole um, the, 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 the scene, right? It seems like everything you do is tied in from your personal life to your work to um you know your your drive and your passion how do you do that do you actually like that or do you try to separate it like you know i'm home i'm only going to spend time with my kids no no shop talk how does that work for you 
I'm a person very much a chameleon that really wants to diversify, but I want to not dilute. I think that's important. I don't want to do too many things that dilute my strengths. And there's things that I think weakness-wise that I want to work on. Definitely as I've gone older, I think over the last decade, I have had moments where I think like, do I want to step away from it? Do I want to do this? I mean, I think the real basis I have to go back to is that when I started motorsport and I got involved, it gave structure to my life. It gave me bumper stickers on how to lead life. I was a very unstructured person in that way because I didn't really know where I was going, what I was doing. So I think I've kind of taken that as a religion and a basis of 10 commandments for myself. You know what I mean? You got to go slower to go faster. You know, just just things like this. Um, just taglines that you can't control factors other than yourself um, on that day um, for competitions and stuff. Um, so for me, I think I really deep down really enjoyed it, um, and I'm very grateful for the that structure that it's given to me. It's interesting. I think we've come to a point in our relationship where I mean, I have my own career and he has his own career. I think we're very independent personalities.、Um, we understand that we work as an ecosystem, but we also work very well. We know what each other's strengths are and weaknesses, and we define that very early in in our relationship. You're good at this, and I'm good at that. Let's stick to that. Let's work on that. The other areas we can work and help each other.、Um, my area was media. His his area was was fundraising. We've then swapped notes. We've learned really. I think the biggest thing to take feedback from each other. That's and that's just any relationship. Not being able to say things that are hurtful or for the sake of saying that. Not to be subjective, be objective. I think that was probably the biggest thing that I've learned out of the motorsport. Everything is objective. There's no such thing as subjective in in, in motorsport. It's all data. It's all facts. It's all figures. That's the truth. And I think that's what Frey makes you a truthful person because you only want to know the truth, no matter how bad it is.、Um, it's a reality check. So I think that's been very important. Most of the time, we have to schedule in when we're going to see each other, what we're we doing, who's picking up the kid. It's just you know daily living.、Um, it's I think got to a point where we're quite fluid right now. If I need support for him for certain things, he needs support from me.、Um, we have a very good, strong relationship, and I think because people always say. How can you work to each other? That's so annoying. You're always around. You're always with each other. And I think I, I like leading my life that way, and it has helped all areas of my my life. And even though for the last two three years I haven't been able to get back into a car, I do.、Uh, of course, my other parts of racing. That's why I have my triathlons. I have my、um, my I guess my road racing. I have my mountain bike racing. I have all these other competitions because there is no other tangible way I feel to be able to practice determination, grit. Doing stuff I don't want to do. I constantly wake up. I'm like, Ugh, I really don't feel like doing this today. I don't feel like doing admin. I don't know banking. I don't feel like doing that. But there's no how. Can, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I love the days where I sit in front of the TV and I've got an hour and watch trashy TV. Love it. I watch some of the worst TV ever just to zone out. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I mean, are you training grit sitting there for thirty thirty、uh, hours of TV? Not really. There's no there's no tangible way. So for me, sport and having these kind of competitive things in my life、um, teaches me that, and that's why I I, I love the motorsport and I keep carrying it on with other other competitions that I do, other sport. I think it, teamwork is super important, super super important, and it is very hard when the lines get blurred, and I. I'm very verbal about communication. I'm saying I need to decompress. I need to go get away. I mean, even for the lead up for this Formula One, I think before that people like you, this must be the most exciting time for you, and it was for the decade of my life, absolutely. But I think things have slightly changed. I had a conversation with a friend that now before I would take every single job, and I would max out my time. That innate thing in me, because I keep going and I love. I love hitting the ground, you know, running, sprinting. That's just me. I love that adrenaline, that high. But even now, I'm like, well, what, what do I want? The anxiety of figuring logistics, where I've got to be, how I want to do this,、um, the stress of just expectations of what people want. I kind of feel like, yeah, I've drawn the line this time, and I think this has come with age, knowing what triggers me、um, for things. Like, I definitely have a.、Uh, Have anxiety over certain things that I can't even say that why I'm anxious. It's just a feeling. I'm not a person who gets too deep into it. I just know that I'm like, <gasps> and I can't. I get physical triggers, 
Um, and I know that I need to step back. So now I've, I've foc- I focus on small things. So this Grand Prix on, on things, on passion projects, connecting people and working with the youth because I feel that has a little bit more enjoyment and less pressure. And I don't mind running towards that and introducing the girls to somebody who, who could be a role model for them. Or, yeah, so step back just a little bit and uh, learn how to say no more. And like, it's okay. I don't need to do that. Yeah. On the note of your projects, there's this go-karting circuit that you operate, right? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. So that was a passion project um, in 2015. I mean, we had the Changi go-kart track um, that unfortunately we, after a year, that had to be let go because the government wanted that land back. And uh, that was hugely successful. We were doing like a proper motorsport. It was in the thick of things back then in 2013. And then 2014, we mulled around with the idea and thought, well, maybe we'll do a new one since the government took the land back. And we thought, you know, we'd had so much troubles around trying to bring karting to the masses uh, because it was, we wanted it to be an extension. It was an extension of our personality. And, uh, I mean, unfortunately, it's seen as an elitist sport, as they love to say this word, elitist sport. But really, it means it's just a high barrier of entry. It's just not, and you need money to be a part of it. I mean, there's no easier way than to say that. You need to have finances to, to, to be in karting. A rich, rich parent's. I don't know what you want to call it. A manager at 10 years old to find your money. I don't know. To me, go-karting was like, before you even think of that, you just go for fun, you know? You're Correct. just going so, around the circuit. for. So that was our concept. We decided, forget doing the hardcore stuff. If We, we realized we were attacking all the wrong avenues or trying to get ministers and schools and, and, and you know, schools here is it's too dangerous and blah, blah, blah. So we decided, hey, you know what? We keep pushing in the wrong direction. Why don't we sell fun? So that became our objective. Let's sell fun and go by the masses. Somebody who's nine years old, somebody who's 70 years old can have the same experience and walk away from it and then understand what it's really about instead of trying to push it through schools. We just kind of changed um, our objective and the way we saw it. And we decided, you know, we don't need to be hardcore about it. Let's just sell fun. And um, we did that for five years and then... um, we just wanted to do another project. I think we, we love having lots of business projects. And then somebody came around, wanted to buy it. And we're like, sure, go ahead. And that was that. Yeah, we just wanted to do something else. You know, it's been five years of doing that project. So what else are you up to nowadays then after that go-karting thing, you know? Well, I mean, um, we've always had this company, um, the Film Dispensary. And that originally, that was something that was helping our careers. So the thing about sport marketing, when you're doing it yourself, it's a very tricky industry. There's a lot of people who think they can be your sport manager, that they can raise funds for you. But it's also because there's a lot of misconception. So raising is not easy. Uh, Funds and sponsorship. A lot of people think that it's maybe just networking and yes, part of it. But also it's just going out there, cold stone, knocking on doors, um, to be honest. I think the misconception, especially around motorsport, and I think most sport, is that they think that it has to be a tyre sponsor, an oil sponsor. It just very basic understanding. Whereas if you go and see American marketing, I think the easiest way to talk about it, like NASCAR, they sell everything. If you go and look at NASCAR, they sell the floor, they sell the pole, they'll sell, they would sell any space that's available. You you see it everywhere. You know what I mean? Sell your soul, maybe, I don't know, but there's branding everywhere and it has nothing to do, you know, um, with motorsport. There's been like porn websites and cars, pet food. You know, I've always said if I had like Tampax all over my cards, I'd do it. <laughs> they had the money, whatever, man. Um, and I think, yeah, when people try to help us and go like, oh, we've got potential leads. I'd like to be a manager. I'll get a cut from that. But it's never resulted in anything because I think the way they were going about it and who they were asking. And I think also the marketing plan around that. So essentially our business, the the film dispensary, started off because we had a better understanding of how to raise funds. We realized we always needed a marketing team uh, with us. So having a good product, having good visuals, um, and to be honest, sponsorships, it's decks. It's just putting out decks, how to convince people, going out for meetings. Um, you knock on 50 doors, you might only get two back. And that's the nature of the business. And that that's what the business was. Of course, then it supported when we had the, the karting place. And then after that, we decided, we flipped the company and we said, let's do something different. What's the most, what's the new thing? You know, we're like robotics, we're like, you know, wireless technology. So we went to robotics for a year and a half. And it was, we chose that because it was very similar to motorsport. Talking about technology, um, electric, because our carts were electric back then. So our concept, our understanding 
battery power, battery life. And then, of course, then it was a little bit of a, of a steep curve, a learning curve. But, I mean, essentially it was the same. And it's marketing. It's about making it sexy, about making robotics sexy. And we did that for a year and a half um, on contract. Um, with a company so I mean I think even as a as, as a as a company we're constantly evolving um, we're constantly doing new things and trying new things out that was a that's our other business that we do so you talk a lot about uh, sponsorship marketing a lot of funds and how motorsports expensive and so on my mind's just blown as to how you went in there and you start asking for hundreds of k's at a time maybe that's what the filmmakers should be doing right now so. <laughs> yeah, yeah 200 k so yeah. Um, how has all of this like shaped your uh psychology towards money to be honest i think the biggest fear out of me is that uh big, not biggest fear the biggest thing in my change of mindset is when i was younger i used to think when people got something it was this very naive thinking and i realize that now because i know and i have i'm empowered with the knowledge that these people asked for things and they got it i was like they must be pushy they must have been sleeping with the boss it must have been, you know, you know what I mean? I used to think all these like things like, you know, or maybe it was parents or they set them up. I think the basic fact is if you don't ask for something, you will never get it. If you don't put the dollar in, you'll never win the lottery. I just, I think that's been the probably the biggest, most basic thing that I could tell, if I could tell a younger me is you've got to ask for it. And no, these people were not pushy. They just had an objective. They had a goal. And if they got it, you know what I mean? Maybe because someone believed in that. Whatever reason, who cares? You know what I mean? There's million one reasons why maybe somebody got something if they asked for it. Um, but that's probably the biggest thinking. My mindset really was more of a very immature way of thinking. But that's also because I never had any training. I didn't have any mentors who told me anything um, on, on how to do it. So I had that terrible thought process. But I think once I got more involved and even for me learning how to set up a business from scratch... Um, and, and learning along the way, dealing with the government. I mean, at, at times it was, it's, I, I just feel like that, that process, I, I feel like anything is possible. Anything is possible. And, and I'm going to come back to a bumper sticker. It's, it's the race is never finished until that last turn. You know, you never say never that somebody's losing. Like it can be the last lap. People's like, well, that's it. He's never going to win. And then suddenly that person crashes out. It always ha- it happens all the time um, in any sport. You think you've won and then this person behind you. Just You just never give up. And I think the most important thing that I've learned, even through this relationship and things that we talk about at home, is never to let it, uh, like if you can't, if somebody says no to you, you just find another avenue. You just, re- there, there are always another avenue. You know what I mean? Um, and I think the easiest thing is people always going like, oh, you're not going to be able to do that. No, no, no. They don't allow that. And, and that's the problem because it's been set in your mind. It's been set in your mind because other people may have tried certain ways, you know, and it's hearsay and blah, blah, blah. But you've really, you've really got to keep pushing and, and doing that. And I think you've got to go under, over, around. Um, and I think that's been where our success is. We've just kept on trying to find different avenues to keep pushing those boundaries. Um, even though people have said it's not possible, you're not going to be able to do stuff. And you guys are like, you know, I think people do always wonder how the hell are you f- raising all this money? And to be honest, I mean, you really got to put yourself out there. And I, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me, like um, even this time around, my husband's racing at the Formula One Grand Prix. The number one rule, especially now we have kids, is not to spend any of your money. You can go about if you have the finances. Uh, you have different types of racing, of course, where you want to finance yourself. And initially, you can do that in the beginning. But the smartest way is to get marketing if you're a marketeer. Um, and this time around, I think in the shortest span of time in two months, um, we set out both of us as a common goal because I knew even for my husband, we are, we're a team, that we wanted to go and fundraise before the Grand Prix because the news came out so late that there was seats available at the support race for this. And uh, for the two months, we just went knocking, advertising, marketing, looking down every avenue for uh, for him um, to raise those funds, for him to go and do that race at the Formula One. That's the best thing that, that we do, that we know how to do. Uh, and we, we did that and he's, he's going to be racing, especially in this this economy, you know, where people are not sure with budgets, where is this going? Um, yeah. On the note of sponsorships and marketing, that's possible on the Uncool Podcast. Just drop us an email at contact at creatives at work.asia to find out more about these opportunities. 
on the note of economy, I think um well we all, we we know the the I word is very big, right? In, in, you know, inflation and so on, and everything gets more or less gone up like twenty percent or something. Like if you go down and buy milk at the supermarket, it's like you know it may just be sixty cents increase, but that's still ten percent. So is this gonna impact you guys as well on in, in motorsport? Like everything or everything's going up ten twenty percent, and that consequently would affect the way you run your business. I mean, I think inflation is always gonna affect your business in some way, even with talent. I mean, there's this whole issue with employment, with things like that, with expectations of market rates, uh, um, market prices. Inflation, I mean, it's a tricky game, but I mean, I think essentially we know companies have out there have money. I think that's the most important thing. When people say the economy, people not, it hasn't stopped people from buying expensive cars. It hasn't stopped people from, from you know, paying the taxes and paying 100 grand, 110 grand, you know, uh, COE hasn't stopped them. People are still paying. And the fact is, you know, because when you see these advertisements out there for the cars, for the manufacturers, for things that you do, they're spending a lot of money on this. You know what I mean? Yes, there's inflation. To answer your question, does it affect? I think minimally. Just got to raise more money then. And that's what I would say. You just got to raise more money. How does that change the your psyche, Claire? I think that's just personality. It's been driven into me as an Asian, my Asian mother, you have to have money for yourself. And I think I, I've tried to really let go of some things going like, it's okay. You know what I mean? That whole relationship with money. I still have very much that basis of old school thinking, only spend what you've got. We, we, I mean, as a relationship, as a couple, we have that. You know, um, we've got kids now, so it's very important to us to want to make sure that we plan for our lives um, that way, um, safeguarding, making investments, um, yeah, setting things out in, in, in our household, things that we can enjoy, things that we don't need. Yeah, and I think obviously, I mean, it comes down, of course, to certain things like passion. And I know now, of course, being in social media, being a host, being a presenter, I have a rough calculation in my head when they're uh, of when I go into sets, they're paying for me as a talent, what 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 they've rented out and stuff. They, there's money there. There's money to be made. And we know that people have money. They always have money for advertising, for marketing. It's just how they see your worth, how you've placed your worth, have you, how you found that value and what they see out of you. Have you sold a good enough story for them to spend the money and uh, getting the name out there? And how do you maybe perhaps convince them to want to sell their story? Um, how to convince them, um, yeah, to, 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 to take that chance out on them. I think it really comes down to that. But I mean, coming back to your question on the, was it on the relationship with, with money? How has my psychology of money? I mean, I, I've, I've learned now that as long as you're hardworking, I mean, in that aspect, I mean, there's variances of what hard work is. But from myself, my own personal view, there is always money to be made. Um, I, I don't need to have it all. I, I, I don't. I don't need to be collecting 20 houses and and having all these things and you know because it also for me I mean it's it's exponential right having more things is more problems for me that's how a very basic kind of view in my in my head I think try and keep it as simple as possible yes I mean now and again I do I have nice things um, I do have nice cars and stuff like that um, but I also have that value that I know that I I work hard I'm just definitely that kind of person who finds it hard to stay at home I like projects I like meeting people I like connecting people I like working for people for clients um, I like being part of their projects and helping to bring their projects to life because they have confidence in me to do that I mean yeah I think I'm just living life to be honest I'm just living life I, I really don't think super hard about the future of marketing which you clearly are very experienced in uh, where do you see all this uh, marketing going especially about the new technologies coming in like you know blockchains web 3.0 and, and so on how do you see that changing marketing I do I mean I, I mean to be honest I love the, con the the concept of it. I think I've always been involved in technology, like I said, with the computers, with the web, with you know everything behind it. I think definitely I'm I'm a I've always been that risk taker. So I, I enjoy the concept of even investing some of my portfolio into that. Even some of these these things, um, I think there's a lot of naysay, especially with crypto crashing and what and whatnot and Web three. I love the concept. I love the concept of the matrix. Um, how it pans out, I mean, I don't think it's the right time now technology-wise. We're all still trying to find a placing, a worth, a value in it. 
but I think the creatives are all coming up with with, with a certain ways to make it a lot more interesting. I mean, it's also a scary place. A lot of people have lost a lot of money, but I think this is where, I mean, this is where you have to have make, make the smart decisions um, about it. Um, I think future-wise, it's only going to get more. I mean, I still, I think it's it's going to be around for a long while. It's going to be involved in everything. I mean, this whole payment, payment gateways, um, man, just the whole world. I've got I've got friends who are involved in just applications in 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 work, um, even people in the finance industry in, involved in it. And I think it's an exciting time. I mean, it is the matrix for me. I definitely want to be involved in some kind of way. Um, and yeah, and I I can't wait. I think it's an exciting time. We speak to a lot of creators here. We speak to a lot of um, freelancers and a lot of them, yes, they, they are driven a lot by passion. You know, speaking to you, Claire, I hope you take this in a, in a good light. You are very driven by necessity and survival. And, and of course, there's, I, I think like you said, it's a personality behind you as well. You're always challenging yourself. But it's also a lot of practicality that is inside whatever you do yeah i mean if the zodiacs were real i'm your perfect virgo i am critical um mostly of myself uh, i'm practical and this is also because of my parents very practical beginning so even i mean there's there's always the devil and the angel on my shoulders very much the kind of person where always have to have that savings look after yourself and even though i have a natural wild streak i've managed to swivel that down on that other side to be you know I have a spontaneous side um I've learned to kind of I suppose like quell that douse the fires a little bit on 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 craziness um I still have that but I'm I I just have better decision making skills I think that's probably the the best thing um and I have very good peers around me to go "Mm," you know even if crazy ideas but I suppose just more uh just better decisions. That has come about because of, you know, you having a family right now. Or is it just every day? I think it's come from making a bunch of bad decisions. And that's the only way I would have known. There's there's no other way. There is no other way that I would have learned it if I had not made all those crappy decisions or gone through crappy moments in my life. I would not feel as confident as I am to want to be able to lose everything. So on that note, what's the crappiest thing you've done? I think, oh man, I mean so crushing i mean i mean i think there's certain incidences in your life i mean i've definitely been on the whim kind of person where if i had to move away from someone i would do it you know what i mean and um probably the most so crushing and it's only a few incidences really in my life that i i actually look back and reflect where i've done certain jobs and they've never called me back for i was younger uh, i didn't know what i was doing I, i remember crying back home from a job one day for football and I remember they, they, they'd they given me a job one day. I just rocked up there to do like local leagues and I crushed it. It was live TV. What kind of live? It was five years, shown five minutes before. Second time I went there, I blubbed and they never called me back. Nobody said anything to me. Nobody spoke to me. Nobody said, mm, give you a second chance. They just didn't call me back. Nobody said a word. They just said, okay, cut it short. Film this piece. Bye. It was horrible. I had no direction. I had nobody giving me feedback. I didn't uh, dare ask for feedback. I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I walked away from thinking, what am I doing? Should I even be a host? Should I, you know what I mean? Am I doing the right thing? Um, That's probably, I think, pivotal moments that has really driven me. Um, But on that, I think the rest of the times, I think there was a point in my life when when I hit my 30s, I stopped looking at what's crappy and what's not crappy. I stopped defining and putting tags on them and I just got on with it. I just looked at, actually, I think I changed my mindset of just how, if I had, if I had, crappy moments so-called how did I improve myself and how did I get better how, how do I improve myself I think that was I, I changed my mindset it was huge it's the thing about being freelance and self-employed right? I mean you're only as good as your last job so the, what exactly you just described I think that is exactly it right you you great the first time and second time saying like, ah and then not so great and then it just just spirals down from there if you if you let it that's why I like sport because it's constant. It's the same. You're constantly having bad days, good days, and you're constantly having to pick yourself up and then finding, I guess, your core ethos to like, why am I carrying this on? Do I really enjoy this? What am I going to do? Yeah. I think that's a huge change that a lot of people, once it starts, I think for myself as well, why it resonates is because I also started to 
realize that, right? You've done things like, yes, okay, but doesn't mean you're crap, right? It is just a learning journey. It is, you are still progressing. It's still the next day and you still have to improve. You can't just sit there in that crappiness and like, oh, I'm crap. So that's, that's you know, that's all I'm going to be amount to. Right, so I, I don't know whether it comes with age or it comes with just having to pick yourself up, Claire. Like you just said, you did it, and then just you just have to go on and find a new way to to help yourself further along that journey. Right, this this is full of like lemons thrown at you, you know. And I mean, and my parents went through a lot of it, and they just I don't say they're they're bitter at some things, but there's a lot of things that they just carry on with. They were just hard because they had to. I think. We will have a survival mode. And for me right now, my relationship with money, relationship with whatever I do, there's always a core survival mode. I think that comes to the basis of that. And I think it's important just for my mental health and stuff. I enjoy working. I think it's important for my relationship, important for my kids, I think, to be a role model. And that's what I want them to see. And I think I, I think not so much about myself now. It's really what I want to represent now that I have a family, what I want them to see. And I think if I don't do these things, I, I'm it's very hard for me to pass this on and talk about it to somebody else if I'm not doing it pretty much like that. And I think, you know, just, just, I guess my last piece really is that failure will exponentially lead you to your form of what you see as success. I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned. So what's next for you? You know, what's coming up? I see that you're preparing for, um, is it a triathlon or is it just a, a cycling race? I have lots of things. I mean, I think the the season for triathlons, usually that's the beginning of the year or mid-year. Um, I, I always do the triathlon series. I do a lot of road bike and mountain bike. So I join usually the national championships, um, usually very last minute um, over here for mountain bike and for road racing. I just did my first um, time trial race, which was horrible. It was terrible. First time I've ever done a team sport for cycling. A lot of pressure, a lot of self-doubt. Um, it didn't turn out. My teammates were fantastic. Um, my race myself was not that easy, but yeah, I've just got to keep on pushing and it doesn't mean I'm a cyclist. I just was not great on that day. Things I did in the lead up, I've, I've gone over it. <laughs> yeah. There's always things going out through the year. Um, I, I constantly keep on training. I think that's the one thing I've taken, um, my training quite more seriously, a lot more seriously. Um, just scientifically, I'm doing a lot of training by data triathlon wise. So I'm running, swimming and cycling probably every day, of course, with breaks, but, um, but on a scientific basis with the coach. And um, yeah, before I would train, do the competition, let off the gas, but now it's consistently. I've been doing it now for eight months consistently and now with a coach. So it's a lot of discipline waking up early with the kids. But uh, I think for a person who used to say that I hate routine and I never want to work a nine to five job, Routine is really important. And actually routine for a personality who used to be so wild, like a wild child myself, it's very important. And I enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy the routine. This is a question that we ask uh, all our guests. I know that we asked, you know, when were you the most uncool or your, your lowest point in your life? So when were you the most uncool in your mind? And what would you say to yourself back then if you had the chance? Probably when I thought like back then when I was trying to grapple with being in the industry, like what I told you earlier on, my mindset of going, oh, that person, they've made it because they did this and this and this. I've been conditioned in some kind of way to think negatively about that person other than, you know, and people go like, oh, these people are hanging out in cliques and groups and they're only hanging out with these kind of people. But actually the view was maybe they're hanging out of like-minded people who wanted the same thing, who had an objective, how to get somewhere and how they were doing it. And instead of clapping for them and going, good for you, um, I think in some kind of weird way, I was conditioned maybe by the people I was around or I don't know. I I can't remember pinpoint why, but conditioned to not be happy for them. It's a competitive streak. It's a competitive streak, but I think there's ways to be competitive. I think competitive is one thing. It's hard to break it down in a short period of time. I think it's a very complex thing, but I think credit's due to people. And I think uh, when they've done certain things in a certain way, and I think the uncool part about me was not really understanding them or how they did it or why they did it. And really sometimes it didn't even matter. But um, um, but yeah, but um, building them up instead of breaking them down. Where can they find you if they want to keep up to date on your new project? Sure. Instagram, I have a pretty open life there, um, at Claire Jedrick. 
Um, you can see me now and again on TikTok. I might do random ones. I'm not like super into that, but I do random projects on there when I feel like it's stupid stuff. You can find me on my Facebook. Um, of course, I have my public and profile uh, pages, but that's also at Claire Jedrick um, or uh, facebook.com slash Claire Jedrick. Um, you can also have the webpage. You can just type in my name. Something will pop up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very unique name. <laughs> so you will, you'll find her. So follow Claire and her live on and off the track on her socials, but also follow Freelance Creative Exchange on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Share with your friends on socials. Drop us a five-star rating because it really does help. And we want to continue helping professional freelance creators as much as we can with the content that we do. Because remember, it's cool to be uncool. Like this show? Then rate it five stars and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uncool is a podcast by Creatives at Work. It is produced, written, and hosted by Sean Lee Winchong and co-hosted by Yenling Lo, co-produced by Raven Lim, and edited by Ray Ung. Uncool. It's cool to be uncool. On the next episode of Uncool... When you're working VFX, the shots start coming back just before final completion. In Mortal Kombat, we had there was one character called Goro. It's got four arms. They literally had two stunt guys, one on top of each other, sort of going like this. Then you, the grayscale comes in and then the textures come in. And it's just when you finally get it all put together, it's really a lovely moment. And cool, new episodes every Saturday.